Welcome to Innovation Insights, the podcast where we explore innovation in all aspects of life. I am your host, Dr. Yolanda Sanders. Today, we are thrilled to welcome a special guest, Brian Barker, a visionary in hospitality, diversity, and education. <laughs> Take your Brian, time. It's all good. <laughs> Brian is a notable figure at the Jonathan M. Tisch Center of Hospitality at New York University School of Professional Studies. Here, he imparts wisdom in marketing and entrepreneurship and actively contributes to the university's community diversity initiatives. Before joining NYU, Brian held the esteemed Endowed Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Professorship at the Chaplin School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Florida International University. His dedication to fostering inclusivity and hospitality is further exemplified through his founding of the Alliance for Hospitality, Equity, and Diversity, also known as AHEP, which is a pioneering initiative he began at Florida International, which is a pioneering initiative he began at Florida International University and continues to lead as its founding executive director. His academic journey is as impressive as his professional one. Brian is completing a doctorate of philosophy in hospitality administration management from Iowa State University, where he is delving into studying social enterprises in hospitality and methods to measure social impact. He holds a master's of arts in multicultural organizational communication from DePaul University and a Bachelor's of Science in Hospitality Management from Bethune-Cookman University. With over two decades of experience that spans from the operational management of luxury hotels like Four Seasons to significant academic roles, Brian Barker brings a unique perspective to the hospitality industry. His contributions to the field are not just limited to his operational expertise, but also his commitment to diversity, leadership, public speaking, and community advocacy. Today, we're set to explore Brian's journey, his insights on diversity and inclusion and hospitality, and his thoughts on the future of this vibrant industry. So sit back, Listen, relax, and join us for an enlightening conversation with Brian Barker on Innovation Insight. Hello, Brian. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Sanders, it is an honor to be with you today. Thank you so much for having me on this amazing platform, Innovation Insights. I'm excited to be one of your guests. Well, I am just so excited to have you here. Uh, we've known each other now for about five or six years. Just about. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Yes, and it's been just fun following your journey, uh, your career path, and uh, the impact that you're making, uh, both on academia and industry. So, thank, thank you. you. Uh, thank you for all that you do. <laughs> oh, well, listen, uh, you know, it's truly a joy doing the work that I do. 
I wish I could carry you around with me everywhere with that amazing introduction they just gave me. I sit back and I marvel. I'm like, wow, I, I did that. I did do that. But no, it's been a humbling journey. And I've met so many amazing people who have been uh, inspirational figures in my life, including yourself. Um, you know, we, we met at Iowa State and you've imparted a lot of knowledge and wisdom on me and, um, you know, assisted me along the path. So there's been so many people who have come before me that have helped me become the person that I am. And I'm truly passionate and driven about finding meaningful ways to give back to the community as, uh, as well as the industry uh, that we represent. Wow. You're doing a fabulous job. So keep up the wonderful work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and starting off, just thinking about you've had an amazing career also in the industry, and that's excellent and so important for academics to have that connection with industry, the industry experience. So would you talk about your transition from uh, operational management at one of the top hospitality corporations with Four Seasons to move to an academic role and what inspired that, that shift? Yeah, no, for sure. Listen, I, I appreciate that question. And it's one that I, I think about quite frequently and not with regret, but, you know, Four Seasons is truly an amazing company. And I was truly blessed to start with them as an assistant manager out of immediately out of undergraduate school. And I attribute being able to do that based upon the work that I did as an undergraduate student. But Thune-Cookman is an amazing institution. Then it was under the leadership of Dr. Ernie Boger. And he was a big proponent of getting students involved and engaged. And so NSMH, which is an organization that I've been a member of or a supporter of since I was a, a sophomore uh, in college. And that really set me on a path to have some meaningful engagement opportunities. And so, um, you know, steering back to your question, what allowed for that transition from operations into academia? It's a, a, a phenomenal question. I thought I would be a lifer, to be honest with you. I was on a path to uh, become a general manager. And now, as I sit back, there are many friends that I have who have gone, you know, from, you know, assistant manager, entry-level roles to general manager, which is a phenomenal feat. But one of the observations that I had early on was, you know, while I love the company, still do have some amazing friends who are still with it, I studied the lifestyle of many of the general managers. And I think the industry is kind of committed to changing that. But I knew that I wanted to have a family and that was extremely important to me. And the only path that I saw for myself in the industry was one of the GM. And I was, I had a laser focus on that role. But, you know, I, I would see that on my early days, if I got to work at 5, 6 a.m., sometimes my general manager would be there already. And on late nights, there would be times I'm there till 11, 12, 1. There would be times I would see a general manager. The industry has done a phenomenal job in shifting away from that. But that was something that was a little bit daunting for me, particularly, you know, I unfortunately grew up in a divided household and, and didn't have my dad in my life at the time. And I knew that I wanted a family and I knew I wanted to be a present father. And so I left the industry ultimately and decided to go and get a master's. And I was committed to this diversity cause early on, you know, got my, finished my master's in 2011. Diversity has always sort of been a hot topic. I mean, certainly in the news a lot now, but 
the degree was interesting degree, multicultural organizational communication. And that to me was combining the best of both worlds. I knew that I was a fairly decent communicator through my organizational success. And I also had a, a desire to learn more about culture and, and how I could impact our culture using both my knowledge in organization and communication. But interestingly enough, I took a class on nonprofit consulting and that really inspired me. And so upon graduation, I actually took a role as a director of operations and technology for a small nonprofit in the suburbs of Chicago. And there we were providing clinical services and housing for mentally ill adults. There would be days we would literally take a homeless individual and place them in their own house. Some of the most rewarding work I've ever done in my life. And so I did that work for about six months and the organization was teetering with some state violations because there were some vacancies. And so I hit the ground running. We filled those vacancies. And then sure enough, the moment, almost the day that we got those vacancies filled, I ironically got a call from DePaul University and was offered a full-time teaching position. And that was the furthest thing from my mind at the time. I had never taught before. In high school, I wasn't a great student. I didn't take academic serious until I got into college. So I never imagined that I would now be on this side of the spectrum as an academic. But I embraced the challenge. And, and by the end of my first year, I was actually leading the College of Business in my um, student evaluations. So the students were loving the work that I was doing. And then after a couple of years, I realized, hey, if I'm going to do this, then I, I need a Ph.D., and started asking and shopping around. And then that's how I found Iowa State program and ultimately met you. And unfortunately, it's a gift and a curse. I've had these amazing opportunities that have somewhat distracted me away from the finish line. So I'm, I'm ABD now. Um, I've collected my data. And so now I just need to you know, finish up this dissertation so I can put this chapter uh, to bed. But I've had some phenomenal academic you know, appointments and opportunities and now to lead a nonprofit. And so I'm just, I'm passionate about the work that we're doing and, and also educating and, and, and guiding the next generation of hospitality professionals. So it's been a dynamic journey, um, but uh, I don't have any regrets and, 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 and I'm thrilled that I had that operational experience. I strongly encourage young people to get it at some point in their life, even if it's in college, because I know we have, there's a big focus on young people getting into the C-suite, which I respect and appreciate. But the operational experience is second to none, and it, and it truly has elevated me in, on, on many levels of my professional career. I so agree with you. I feel in any industry, it is important to have the operational, because as you move up into a C-suite, you have a better understanding of the whole organization. Having that vertical understanding, I feel, is essential. Absolutely. And also in academia, too. Absolutely. And then, then also we're a people business and whether it be academia or industry, this is a people business and my ability to connect with staff members and colleagues is truly a gift, right? I've been blessed with the ability to relate to people of all walks of life. And that is serving me so much. So to this day, I just had a really powerful meeting with a very well-known foundation and, and so we're really on a cusp of perhaps receiving a transformational gift. And they complimented me really just on my ability to inspire and to motivate and to lead and to connect. 
And those are all those operational skills, right? You walk into a housekeeping department and it's 60 some odd, generally speaking, it's mm -hmm. generally women mm -hmm. in, in that mm -hmm. space, mm -hmm. right? And they're looking at you like, okay, what do you have to say? And you need to come up with something to say. You need to be able to connect with them and get them through those tough days. And they're living very real lives and you need to have the ability mm -hmm. to relate to them. And so it's taught me the ability to relate to someone who is just at work to clean rooms, whose mm -hmm. mother might be dealing with some terminal illness versus a general manager who's making a quarter million dollars, who's reporting to a billionaire owner, right? And so it taught me this amazing ability to connect with people in all facets of life. And that truly proves today. We have some of our students whose parents are very affluent, right? And so they're going to have a very different perspective. And some of our students are first generation, right? And they're going to have a very different mm -hmm. perspective. So even in academia, we need to have the ability to connect to people who come from different walks of life. Absolutely. I so appreciate you saying that because people are people and yeah, you need to connect with them. Absolutely. 100%. Yep. Oh my goodness. Well, tell us a little bit more about that Alliance for Hospitality, Equity and Diversity. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for that. It's been a labor of love. And, you know, I, I have to give credit where credit is due. I was hired by FYU to create an alliance and sort of given a blank canvas. The chaplain school is named after the chaplain family. Currently now Wayne Chaplin is the CEO of that or of that organization, Southern Glacier Wine and Spirits. And so they're the namesake for, for Florida International University. And they had done some soul searching after George Floyd, as did many organizations. And they did something that was really innovative. Talk about innovation. They did what was called an idea distillery, right? So they're a liquor distributor, right? But they did an idea. Just, I think there were approximately 10,000 employees in that company. And the, the strategy team distilled down like the five best ideas and they activated all of them. And one of those ideas was to create a diversity, equity, inclusion course at Florida International University. And not only that, they said, we need to create an alliance, right? That's going to help transform the industry. And so that was my charge going into that role. And so it was about a two and two and a half year journey of first curating an amazing council. Then it was a council. Fast forward to today. There's been lots of legislation and policy there, anti-DEI, which sort of led to my transition out of Florida International University. But we've maintained those relationships, both with Southern Glaciers as well as FIU. And now we are a 501c3 organization with the fiduciary board. And so we were able to convert a, a good majority of that early council into now fiduciary board members. And as I'm just mentioned with you, we're given some amazing, you know, opportunities to pitch to some great foundations and associations. And we're really close to, to, to having the funding that we need to create a, a revolutionary change across our industry. And we refer to it as a head, it's an improper spelling, but we, one of our extended supporters, and I should talk a little bit about that. We have a great network, not just our board, but beyond that. There's a group of Cornell alums. They're the class of 81, and they refer to themselves as Dream. They've, in fact, built a website to articulate their goals, their missions, their objectives. And they're truly focused on intentionality, 
specifically supporting the path of Black professionals in hospitality. And again, these are, imagine now, Cornell is our only Ivy League hospitality program. These individuals graduated in 81, which was almost around the time I was born. And so imagine where these people are in their lives, right? These are all senior leaders across all facets of the hospitality industry. Some real estate, some of them own hotels, some of them own restaurants, some of them own brands, many of them senior CEOs, RVPs. It's just a staggering list. And in fact, my very first regional vice president and general manager at Four Seasons is in this group. And it's just mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And, and we had a conversation. I'm sorry to go into tangent, but oh. this group meets weekly. They've done that for the last two years, weekly, right? The, the extended group is about 35 or 40 members, but there's a concentrated group of about 12 that meet weekly. And I remember being on the call with, with that individual, Robert Chima, and, and it, particularly in the old school days in hospitality, you always call your GM Mr. Right. And you don't break that tradition until somebody invites you to. And so we were on a call recently and I was like, oh, Mr. Chima, SYZ. And they said, Brian, please call me Robert. And it was just like it was just a moment that that is hard to describe because this is a phenomenal leader who's lead, who has led multiple Four Seasons hotels to through great success. Five Diamond Award renowned leader. So anyhow, I say all that to say that there's a phenomenal team of supporters, both directly affiliated and non-directly affiliated. And right now, our mission is to transform the hospitality industry by intentionally uplifting and amplifying a culture representative of untapped talent. And so we were very strategic. We, we, we probably were in, a, in an eight-hour strategy session when we defined that mission and even the foundation that we, that I had an opportunity to present to today was just in awe of our mission. And untapped talent, it's, we, while we're very focused on intentionality and supporting Black and Brown Hispanic students, we didn't want to call that out in that very specific way because we don't want to create taboo around these populations because there's oftentimes assumptions about these populations that they can't perform or they underperform. And we know that to be far from the truth. In fact, what we have identified is that these populations, when given the opportunity to be tapped, to have an opportunity, they're going to perform. They just need that opportunity to be tapped and give them that opportunity. And so we're thrilled about the work we're doing. We anticipate impacting the entire industry. But right now we have a laser focus on recruitment and we have a two-point strategy to do that. One is going to be campus takeovers. We recognize that the industry has a branding and a perception issue. We want to attack that one campus at a time while, while simultaneously preparing our university partners, potential partners, to be prepared for this enrollment cliff of 2025. We know that our lack of population is going to catch up with our academic institutions. And the organizations and institutions that survive are going to be those who have a strategic plan to engage young people who have not traditionally been engaged. And that's a big part of what we're going to do through our campus takeovers. 
And then last, secondly, related to AHEAD, our focus is going to be on high school recruitment. So we're working on creating a platform of regional recruiters, as well as a network of academic partners and connecting with community organizations and other nonprofit associations to have some one-on-one time with these young people, almost in a way that a division one football basketball yeah. coach will go and sit in the living room and talk to mom and dad and talk to them about yeah. what we're going to do for your child. That's part of what a head's mission is. But then we also want to hold the industry accountable. When those young people get placed, we're staying with them. That first manager, we're going to hold them accountable. And we plan to see them all the way through to the C-suite. So it's the long game that we're playing and we're starting with the pipeline and we have some tremendous support from Hilton, Hyatt, Marriott, JLL, Southern Glacier, CBRE, this long list of Cornell uh, alumni, uh, Convention and Visitor Bureau CEOs. We have an amazing team. I'm sorry, I know I'm leaving some people, Bacardi. We have just some amazing leaders that are here and fully dedicated in supporting the work that we're doing. And so we're thrilled about it. Sorry, I could go on and on about that. Oh, that is fabulous. And talk about innovation and being able to turn this initiative into uh, a nonprofit and then also expand the support for it. Absolutely. Particularly at a time of turmoil, right? I mean, we, we all understand that diversity, equity, inclusion is truly under attack. It's so unfortunate because many of the top consulting firms have already made the business case. You know, even the Federal Reserve Bank from San Francisco put out a, a study about two years ago, and they said that racial inequality is costing the U.S. economy. And they, they, they tabulated it from 1990 until 2020 when that study came out. It has cost the U.S. economy $71 trillion, right? And so, you know, right now we have individuals who are attacking university presidents who are diverse and in many instances, black and in many instances, black women, right? Black women, unfortunately, are at the forefront of this attack that we're seeing play out. But it's so disappointing. And it's not because I'm a black man and I have great reverence for black women that exists. But it's because those individuals who are attacking this work have no idea that they're attacking their own businesses and they're attacking our country, right? I mean, we're only as strong as our weakest link, right? And so if we're not trying to bring up the fabric and the lowest individuals in society and, and, and make sure that they have the resources and the support and the infrastructure, then that means that we are celebrating failure, essentially, Right. All because of this perception that someone might be being left behind. And I'm also disappointed with our court system because what they've shown me by many of the rulings that they have, you know, weighed in on is that we as a society don't understand this word racism. You cannot, you look it up in a definition, but also I would encourage individuals to get an academic understanding of this word racist and racism. And racism is grounded in power. It's grounded in historic connection to power. So just because an individual has a hateful thought or ideology, that doesn't in itself make them racist, right? 
as black as a black or a brown person, if you don't like another person, that doesn't make you racist, particularly in the United States. You have to be connected to a systemic power structure, have that thought, and then embed that thought into systemic processes, right? Having a bad thought is a prejudice, and that's a bad thing, and we should address prejudice. But, and, and so now we're using this concept of reverse racism, which fundamentally does not exist. And I'll challenge anyone to that debate. Reverse racism does not exist. You can have a historically underrepresented minority or population person have a prejudice ideology. Yes, you can have that. And if you're on the receiving end of that, it might hurt. But if that person cannot control how you are employed, if they cannot control how you live, if you eat, if you're in prison, whether or not you can have a child or not, it is about excuse me, it is about power and control and prejudice. That's how we constitute racism from both an academic as well as a, a Webster de uh, textbook definition. So sorry I'm about my tangent, but I, I had to speak on that just a little bit. Oh, no, I appreciate that because you have outlined the differences between racism and prejudice that is oftentimes very confusing for people. I mean, I, I just any corporate executive, you know, listening to this, you, you have to do your homework, right? This is not the time to shut down your DEI initiative. This is now time to double down, right? If you don't trust me, then look at the data from JP Morgan. Look at the, the data from Ernst & Young. Look at the, the, the data from all the, the top five consulting firms. It's there. The business case for DEI is made, right? And now we have vulnerable individuals, you know, who are insecure in themselves and most importantly, insecure in the changing demographics that have been projected for the last 50 years. That's what we're fighting. We're fighting individuals who are concerned with the changing demographics that have been projected for 50 years and they're taking it out on DEI initiatives. And now at the forefront of this movement is black women, right? It's really unfortunate because your organization will not perform as organizations who are invested in diversity, equity, inclusion. And it's a fact. So do, do we want a recession or do we want prosperity? Are you a capitalist or are you a socialist? Because these anti-DEI movements actually look a lot more like socialism than they do capitalism because we are not trying to bring everybody to the table and embrace the data, the rich data that we already know exists. I should probably leave it there. I totally appreciate your comments on this and, um, and your clarity of thought on it. Thank you. Yeah, it's been intense. It's been intense and I'm very passionate about the work. Mm -hmm. So thank you for the opportunity to share. No, I thank you for sharing. And as we think about this, you've been a champion for DEI in hospitality. And how can you just expand, in, especially in hospitality, how these principles will evolve the industry and, and what challenges remain for the hospitality industry? 
No, absolutely. Yeah. As I share, we definitely have a perception issue, right? And sometimes perception is grounded in reality, right? And this is the conversations that I'm having. If we want to change the narrative about hospitality, then we need to change the reality about hospitality. And who is the best person to champion this message? It's going to be young people who are the recipient of positive outcomes, mm. point blank period. I've heard stories of these big marketing agencies coming up with slogans and frames and $5 million invested in, in, in that to, to help change the narrative about hospitality. And it's not going to be effective. If you want to change the narrative, then you have to change the reality because young people are aware, right? There are many opportunities that young people can make money nowadays, right? More than I can even comprehend, quite honestly. These young people can do things that, that I, I probably could never do. I have a graduate assistant supports me from a marketing perspective. There's a young man who built out the Ahead website. And, you know, I, I can frame up a conceptual idea extremely well, and I just let them run and they make magic happen, right? And that's a professional skill, right? And these young people have skills and abilities that, that need to be compensated and rewarded. And so when we think about DEI, it's also diversity of thought, right? And so when we take people who have a very different lived experience, including myself, we approach problems very differently. I'm confident when given the right support, mm-hmm. I can change the narrative, period. Because I eat, sleep this thing. Mm-hmm. I know the young people. I know how we need to change the narrative. I just need the right support to impact those individuals. And that's when we talk about diversity. It's not just about color, right? It's about diversity of thought. You can very well have a group of all white men in a room with very different backgrounds and have a very diverse room, right? The optics, of course, will look bad. But when you have individuals from very different lived experiences who have embraced other communities and cultural backgrounds, when you put them together to work on a problem, it's going to be a phenomenal result, right? And so we need to open ourselves up to unique ideas and unique ways to address these ideas. And academia has a lot to learn. It's been doing the same thing the same way for a long time and expecting different results. And I think we all know what that is. And so even our philanthropist community need to think through that a little bit as well. They've been endowing and doing certain things for a long time, hoping to get different results and it's not happening, right? So we need to open ourselves up to, to be, have diverse ideas, diverse thought, diverse people, and not just this, you know, diversity isn't marketing, right? And I've been a part of organizations where, you know, it's, oh, put the black person here and do this. And you look at the photo shoot for the organization and it's important to have diverse representation that there's research to support that, but behind those images, Is there a healthy, vibrant, diverse community that doesn't feel um, suppressed, right? And feels accepted and actually belongs, right? I have one of the, one of the great supporters who I work with is one of the executives in Southern Glaciers. And he thanks me often because people will say DEIB, DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. And I would always correct them. I said, belonging is an outcome, right? Let's not talk about belonging. If you don't understand 
that you need to have diversity, equity, and inclusion to create the outcome of belonging. We're not just chasing belonging because now we're chasing a smokescreen. We need to be committed to diversity, committed to equity, and committed to inclusion. And that in itself creates belonging. And so that's a very important equation. I love that. I love that. I'm going to adopt that. DEI equals B. I love that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I've been th okay, so thinking about um, your work at NYU, uh, which is just an excellent institution, and you're teaching marketing and entrepreneurship, how do you integrate your industry experiences into teaching there? Man, listen, first of all, I, I have to give a shout out to the team at NYU. Associate Dean Nick Graff is, you know, talk about a visionary and like a radical thinker. I've worked with a lot of amazing people, but he truly is a visionary leader. He took a shot on me, you know, with me. I mean, I'm proven, right? Everywhere I go, I do great work, but he was able to create a role for me at lightning speed, unlike anyone has ever seen across the academy. And that's a testament to him, his ability, but it's also a testament to Dean uh, Angie Graff. All right. She's dean of one of the largest schools and, and she's not a traditional academic. She doesn't have a Ph.D., but she's a brilliant visionary leader and she trusts leaders like Nick Graff. And they're doing some amazing, amazing. They I say they, but it's me. We are collectively doing some amazing work. And so. Um, so, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled to be teaching a marketing class. I'm also thrilled to be teaching a social enterprise class. Sales and marketing is not a, a direct background, but I did some research in, in my dissertation looks at value co-creation. I think we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, which comes from the, the marketing background. But I truly consider myself a social entrepreneur, even in the work that I do every day, right? Mm -hmm. Ahead, even it's a nonprofit, but it will be a revenue generating enterprise, either through philanthropy or exchange of services and membership, right? Um, but we are have a laser focus on 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 our mission and our social mission, which, you know, we've articulated already. And so I'm given an opportunity both with the space and the bandwidth to lead ahead. And, and so I have a reduced teaching load that supports the work that I'm doing with the head. But then also I'm leading an initiative, an apprenticeship initiative, which has been supported by the Myriad Foundation. And so. What we're going to do, starting in the New York market, is we're targeting young people who are not traditionally college-bound, placing them in hotels. Initially, we're navigating around the union environment um, because we want them to be in a non-unionized role because we want them to have capacity to do unique things and oh. to learn the business. But what we're doing is, if it's, a, say, a sales and marketing individual, what we're doing is now we're aligning their job functions with the academic curriculum requirement for sales and marketing courses. So after three years of working as a full-time apprentice and meeting with their supervisor regularly, who we will train, right? We will ensure that their supervisor understands the academic rigor that we're expecting and, and can 
embed that into their workflow function that after three years of being paid full, you know, compensation as an apprentice, they will now earn an associate's degree from NYU. And we will honor that degree and put them on path to now becoming a four-year graduate of New York University. So we're starting in New York. We, we hope to expand that to D.C. You know, NYU has campuses all over the world, Shanghai, Dubai, Paris, London, yeah. um, California, D.C., and, and the latest and greatest, this was secretive at some point, but now it's, it's, it's public news. We're, we're working on a campus in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to help young people who are not traditionally college bound, getting them the experience that they need to have a meaningful career, right? We all know sales and marketing leads to usually a six-figure high-earning position. Mm-hmm. So we're intentionally not targeting some of the roles that might be traditionally entry level that could be dead in, you know, stereotypically, but we want to put them in roles that have high potential for management capability. So again, this is radical thought, right? This is Nick Graff's idea. You know, he, he tasked me to lead this initiative. I'm thrilled to do it. I'm thrilled to teach the courses. And, you know, what I learned, and, and I learned a lot at FIU and, and from some of my friends, executives at Southern Glacier, is I have curated for the sales and marketing class because I have some knowledge on it. And of course, you know, we have textbooks and we know that publishers provide content, right? So I have all of the basic content, but what I've put together is a team of high level professionals that you would not believe. Chief marketing officers from Red Roof Inn, chief marketing officers from Conventional Visitors Bureau. So there's about 14 individuals who are going to come in uh, and, and, and deliver content like the real world application. And so, yeah, I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses. And so sales and marketing was not an inherent strength, but I can assure you those young people are going to have a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And so I'm thrilled to just be in an environment where I can employ my creativity while leading some non-academic initiatives that have a national impact. So I'm living a dream right now. It's not easy, uh, but I'm, I'm doing work that's extremely meaningful, both to me, my industry, and, and is providing an opportunity for my family that is second to none. Yeah. Oh, that is incredible. That is incredible. I look forward to hearing more about this initiative as it rolls out and the impact of the stories of the students that get to participate in this. And so innovative to make sure that they end up an associate degree and they move right into a four year. So smart. So Absolutely. Smart. I mean, Nick and I are extremely aligned and, and even the folks over at the Myriad Foundation who have supported this initiative. I, I've, I got an opportunity to spend some time with David Miriam and the, the leaders of the Family Foundation, mm-hmm. Mika and Jen, and they they're the real deal. I mean, and it's not just because they give away these transformational gifts, but the time that I've spent with them and their commitment to truly seeing change, you know, I think there's a lot of cynicism. If you're not close to individuals like that, there's a natural tendency to to be, you know, a cynic about whether or not these types of people are authentic. Mm-hmm. And I spent 90 minutes in, in the meeting with them when they, you know, presented a gift in white to support that work. And I see it. The genuine passion and commitment is there. And, and so I'm just, I'm thrilled to, to play a role in supporting this work. 
Oh, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. <laughs> oh, and, and thinking about your leadership skills, which you have talked about and provided some examples here. One of your accomplishments in industry was leading your team at the Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts to the first triple A five diamond award status during your time there. And so what were some of the leadership strategies that you used to achieve this accomplishment? Absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, it it truly is it is a, a team accomplishment, unequivocally. However, they this was at the Four Seasons Miami property. And I had spent just shy of four years at the Four Seasons Philadelphia property. This was my training ground. And at the time, also known in the in uh, in the company is sort of one of the training grounds within the company, right? Again, that individual who I referenced a moment ago, Robert Chima, was a regional vice president. Most of my peers were Cornell alums, right, in operations. And so it was a high, highly competitive, but also synergistic environment. And so I learned so much in my time there. And then I got an opportunity to return to Florida. My undergrad, as you mentioned, was at Bethune-Cookman, and I, I really couldn't wait to get back to Florida. At the time, my ambitions was to get to Orlando property. It was announced, but, you know, hadn't been developed yet. And so Miami Four Seasons opportunity came about. I transferred there as an assistant manager at the front desk. And the property had been open for five years, and they just could not achieve that five diamond award recognition. And as you look at the assessment tool that's provided, the feedback from the AAA reviewers, a big chunk, like I want to say about 60% of that engagement is from the front office, right? It's from the time that spotter arrives on the ground to, you know, in most luxury establishment, for anybody who's not like a super hotel nerd, which I do think I might be your first lodging industry person, (laughs) there's usually intentional separation from the front door to where the check-in station is, right? The front desk. You usually cannot and should not see the front desk from the front drives in a luxury establishment because a part of it is it's the experience. You should be transformed, right? And as I analyzed the feedback that from the failed, you know, spotter assessments, I realized that's where we were dropping the ball, right? I just, I, I got laser focused on where we were dropping the ball. And then I got promoted to front office manager. And I just made sure that everyone in that front office was on their A game, right? I'm, again, I'm a very friendly person. I got to know my team. They knew me. And there's some leadership principles that I usually might speak to, but People perform better when they like you, right? That from an academic perspective, we refer to that as affect in the classroom, right? Students who like the teacher will work harder generally. Mm-hmm. Well, the same exists in, in, in operations, right? Mm-hmm. When they, and it's not about being the good boss or the nice manager because I was known for holding people accountable, um, you know, and, and that was difficult at times as well. Four Seasons has really high standards. And if a single strand of hair is on a toilet or a bathtub, you know, that can, that can gross a, a customer out, right? So you have to hold people accountable and have high standards, but it's also about making sure you set them up for success, right? So looking at the, ro- excuse me, the rotational system of our greeters, right? Making sure that somebody is always there because you could staff it, but then people kind of fall into their habits. Maybe they're taking a sip or doing something in the back and 
you know, just people kind of get naturally comfortable. And so it's about making sure that you put strategies in place to make sure people are set up for success. And, you know, Dagnabbit, we did it. You know, we, we, we honed in, we executed. And my first year as FOM, we got that five diamond award recognition. And I made sure that was going to stay with me because, you know, I know I work my butt off, but it's a team goal. But front office, again, is about 60% of that performance yeah. and from answering the phones, right? You know, making sure we get it within one or two rings, being present, you know, just making sure that we execute, right? Getting back mm -hmm. to the basic standards, standard testing. Thanks. A good mentor of mine is, is still, a, you know, he's like a regional director of sales and marketing. He, one of his first lessons to me was check what you expect, right? If you expect something, you check on it. Yeah. And so that was something that I would do very frequently and I would make it fun, right? Like yeah. I, I would, yeah, as front office manager, I would go and, and stand next to my agents as they're checking someone in mm -hmm. and pretend like I'm busy and listen to everything that they're saying. And the moment that they're done, give them feedback and I would make it fun, Yeah. but I would also challenge them to do better and yeah. to execute yeah. better. Right. And, 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 and people stepped up to the plate and, and as a team, you know, we executed. So yes, it's something, a feather I carry in my hat because I, I believe in execution. I'm a fun, laid back guy. I'm not the traditional kind of, you know, you might think that I'm you know, very like a type. I'm not, I'm laid back, Yeah. but I expect people to perform and, and yes. I try my best to perform and hopefully people will live up to that. Well, I love that you talk about that experience when when I was department chair of a, a program that had a hospitality management program in it, that was one thing that we worked on in our main office was that experience that someone had when they entered in to report to the main office. And so how do we greet people? How do we answer the phone? How do we welcome them? And we had coffee and water available too. So, you know, just to make people feel welcome within the environment. Yeah. It sets the tone. You know, a lot of these larger full service hotels are now mixed use developments, right? So you have residents, mm -hmm. you have people going mm -hmm. to commercial outlets, right? You so do. if you walk into this big, beautiful, overwhelming hotel where the front desk is in a different place, Mm -hmm. You could potentially spend five, 10 minutes lost oh, yeah. if somebody is not there to receive you and to guide you and get you pointed yeah. in the right direction. And then, of course, technology, right? The door, the greeter can then radio to the front office. So by the time you turn that corner, they know exactly who you are. They have your keys ready. It just becomes a very seamless yeah. process. And so... You know, that's, it's critical no matter where you are in, in, you know, yeah. we think about bedside manner. Part of our hospitality mm -hmm. campus takeovers is, you know, we want to have these conversations with non-traditional, you know, non-traditional students, right? right? One of the leading causes of mal medical malpractice is bedside manner, mm -hmm. right? If you're not nice to your patients, they're going to feel that you don't have their health in, in their best interest. Exactly. And, and, and if something goes wrong, that could have been incidental or going to happen anyway, because mm -hmm. you weren't kind to them, now they're going to pursue legal actions. And yeah. so yeah. being kind has sweeping ramifications yeah. on your business. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. It does. It does. And in uh, academic units, students and parents visiting and other stakeholders visiting, you know, a, a college campus is extremely difficult to navigate sometimes. And so being able to Absolutely. find where you are and so uh, having a friendly, welcoming 
uh, encounter with someone that can help you get to where you need to go or do or is truly important. So thank you for sharing your perspectives on that and how your work with, again, a top property, uh, uh, a premier property, I should say, to implement those operations. Oh, no, my no, God. Uh, yeah, thinking about, I'd like to you know, talk a little bit about your dissertation research and how you're working as a social entrepreneur and, and hospitality and urban environments. And so could you talk about your research with us? Yeah, no, for sure. I entered the program having some idea. I did enough research with friends and, and, and uh, other academics in the industry that I knew I needed to somewhat have a, a laser focus. And I spent a lot of time in my master's program uh, and just as a professional in coffee shops. And particularly once I started my PhD, I spent a tremendous amount of time in coffee shops. And to change the monotony of it all, I would just go around to different coffee shops. And this is at the time I was in Chicago. And this was fascinating because it would be enough activity around me that I could take breaks from my work and just sit around and look. But then I started to get, you know, fascinated and realized that a lot of these coffee shops had missions and, and some of them had a social purpose. And so then I got really fascinated with that and, and started really doing a deep dive and trying to understand it. You know, there's a cafe in Chicago called Kurt's Cafe. They focus on, on, on job training readiness for young individuals with no, no skills. So uh, there are many distinctions between these coffee shops and traditional enterprise coffee shops, which is what my research looks at. So Kurt's Cafe that focuses on job readiness they are thrilled to have turnover because that means a young person has gone through their program. They actually have social workers and they have now graduated and received another job somewhere else, right? A complete different paradox from a traditional for-profit organization, yeah. right? But they're a cafe, they're generating revenue, right? So they're revenue generating, but they have a social mission. There's another cafe in Chicago that's connected to a mental health facility. Every barista is trained in suicide prevention. They're literally saving lives, right? Wow. So the essence of what my dissertation is looking at is the value of that cup of coffee to the consumer, right? Does it carry more value knowing that your cup of coffee was prepared by a barista who's trained in suicide prevention, who literally every day could be saving someone's life, right? And then I learned, you know, through some of my professors at Iowa State, that there's a concept for that. It's called value co-creation, right? Mm -hmm. So the consumer is co-creating value in the experience because they're assigning value based upon their own moral orientation, right? And so then I got interested with this concept of, well, how do we create measurements, you know, when it comes to these social enterprises? And so what my dissertation is looking at is assigning value through co-creation, right? Assigning an inherent value through value co-creation. And so we've tested about 900 respondents and the data is showing that consumers and, and there's been similar research in that facet, but not specifically as it relates to coffee shops. Yeah. 
which of course is a hospitality environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so part of my implications is, you know, why can't more traditional enterprises embrace a social mission? Right. Right. Because we know that there's corporate social responsibility. Yeah. But we also know that there's a lot of cynicism and the research supports that when it comes to social responsibility. Right. right? And we know that there are a lot of initiatives that might be perceived as gadget or greenwashing. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Or even, um, you know, diversity washing. Mm -hmm. And so why can't traditional enterprises, because most full service hotels all have a coffee shop within them. Mm -hmm. What if it had a social mission, right? You might be able to connect with your consumers a lot better, but not only the consumers, you might be able to connect with the community in a much more meaningful and impactful way because you are creating value by addressing a social problem. Yes. The same services will be delivered a problem. So I'm thrilled about that work. I, I've just, I've been, it's been a gift and a curse that I've, you know, been thrust into leadership opportunities that has kind of slowed down my ability to finish. And, and trust me, I, I lose sleep every night thinking about it, but I also know the work that I'm doing is so critical. It is. I just ask any well-intentioned person who hears this to lift me in prayers and I get through the finish line. You will. But I'm confident of both in my research as well as the applied work that I'm doing for our field and for our industry. So Absolutely. I'll do my best to get it done. That's all I can say for right now. Well, I would say stop losing sleep over it. You're a very busy man and you're doing some excellent work and you will finish it. So uh, just keep on doing and take care of yourself too. So thank you. We, we have to work. We have to. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have wearing many hats. I'm a husband. You know, I'm a father of three. We have a three-month-old, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old. And, and, and as I shared with you as when we first began, being a present father is important to me. And so I recognize I need to take care of myself to do that. So as busy as I am, I, I do. I prioritize my family and my health because I know that's important. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this. I'm going to get to the finish line for anybody watching who knows and have been wondering. I'm going to get there. Don't you worry. Oh. But there's been some amazing opportunities for, that have major implications for all of us. And I've prioritized yeah. those things. But we'll get it done. We'll get it done. Yes. Well, and we're going to have you back on Innovation Insights, too, because there's so many more questions I have to ask and talk with you about, uh, uh, but as we um, think about this, how um, should someone reach out to you if they want to support your work, uh, collaborate with you, um, have mentorship from you? Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for that. They're, they're, man, I'm going to, okay, speaking of innovations, I hope my board doesn't kill me. Uh, because we haven't fully scrubbed it, but we're, you're going to get some tea. You're going to get a little bit of tea. So the AHEAD website um, is www.theahed.org. Um, so we haven't released this, so this was not a planned release. But, you know, anybody listening who's following Innovation Insights and has made it all the way through to this point, you deserve it. It's theahead.org. That's our website. You can also reach me at NYU. My email is b.barker, B-A-R-K-E-R, at nyu.edu. 
And we also have a quarterly newsletter, uh, which we are committed to getting out once a quarter. We should probably get that out probably around February, maybe late February. So those are some key ways. So you, you'll, there's an opportunity to connect to our newsletter on the website. Okay. You can email me and ask for our newsletter or email me and ask me what, you know, whatever it is that you need. But yeah, I know I'm thrilled to connect with young people. You know, we're, for as much as the framework that we have established was still brand new, okay. we're still early. We haven't added our academic members yet because we're trying to solidify the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. As I shared with you, that AAA status, it's about execution. So, oh, yeah. you know, we've been doing a lot of talking for a while because we also went through a transition from being a project within FIU to now a nonprofit and putting in a fiduciary board and putting in, you know, bylaws and constitution mm -hmm. and just all of those important things. So it. For the novice who've been hearing or seeing me, it might feel slow, but we, we've mm -hmm. done some phenomenal, amazing work and, and we want to make sure we get it right. right. That's exactly. what's important. We're not trying to race to market. We're trying to get it done right. Yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah, so that's, you know, that's, that's where we are. Excellent. And, um, and you're on yeah. LinkedIn too, correct? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn, Brian mm -hmm. Barker. There's not too many of us, but if you do Brian Barker NYU, you'll find me fairly easily. And yeah, we do have in a head page on LinkedIn, okay. which you can also connect to our okay. newsletter there as well. So we're, we're building it. It's a little baby, but we're building it. Well, we'll connect with you via Innovation Insights too, and make sure that we, um, you know, supply this information. Um, Thank you. We released podcasts. The last question that I ask every guest is, I love I it. <laughs> How do you define innovation? You know what? I've enjoyed listening to about three or four of your previous guests, and I love all of their versions of, of innovation. And however, the literature on social enterprise actually offers a definition on, on, on innovation. And essentially, innovation is a very key function on innovation is that you fundamentally have to solve a problem. You, you have to create a new solution to a problem, right? So any business that's gonna be created, right? There has to be some uniqueness and some problem, right? If it's a restaurant, then you're now solving a problem of creating a new concept and a new way of service and a new you know, offering, right? That's gonna resonate with people, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's fulfilling a problem. We all need to eat, right? At a very most fundamental level. And so innovation is, you know, someone could do anything. And if it doesn't solve a problem, in my opinion, is art, right? But you have to be solving a problem and, and doing it in a unique way to, in my opinion, to be considered an innovation. And so that's what I'll, I'll leave with the audience is innovation is a strategy for solving problems. Excellent. Thank you for that definition. Truly appreciate it. And thank, thank you, you for, for having me. Well, thank you for joining us uh, on Innovation Insights and sharing your valuable perspectives. Your innovative, you. Well, your innovative work in the field of hospitality is not only remarkable, but also transformative. Oh, so Brian Barker's journey from the operational echelons of luxury hotels 
to the academic arenas of prestigious universities like NYU, FIU, and DePaul showcases a dedication to excellence and a passion for hospitality that is truly inspiring. His role in founding and leading the Alliance for Hospitality Equity and Diversity ahead underscores his commitment to creating an inclusive and equitable industry and academic units too. <laughs> his academic pursuits at Iowa State University, exploring social enterprises in hospitality and measuring the social impact, highlight a forward-thinking approach to the industry's evolution. This coupled with his Master's in Multicultural Organizational Communication from DePaul positions him as a leader in hospitality management and understanding and fostering diversity and communication in the field. Professor Barker's contributions to diversity, equity, and inclusion in hospitality education and his development of globally recognized courses have set a new standard for the industry and academia. Through his innovative work, he is not just educating the next generation of hospitality leaders, he is also shaping the very fabric of the industry to be more inclusive, understanding, and socially responsible. Remember, the innovation extends beyond just technological progress. It encompasses applying our distinctive abilities and viewpoints to affect meaningful, a transformative alteration to our individual fields. I am Dr. Yolanda Sanders, and I'm signing off until our next episode. Keep innovating, keep dreaming, and keep making a difference. <laughs>